episode of the Ever Black Podcast is brought to you by Death Wish Hot Rods and Customs. Check out their Instagram for all their new t-shirts, caps, beanies, cups, and the all-new Atomic Death lineup. I just want to like come in there and record some guitars with a death metal pedal. Hey, dude, that's what I do. You, Excellent. You nailed me to a T. Nerdy death metal. Um, and I've got one of those SM7Bs that I use regularly too. Oh, good. Excellent. Cool. I'm exposed. <laughs> well, I, you know, knows what, you know, you know one when you see one. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, uh, I've, yeah, yeah. I've had my time with the death metal pedal. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> really? Really? I mean, do you get into a lot of the metal, the heaviest stuff? When I was younger, I was really into metal, as you can imagine. Like every every dude gets into metal at some point in time in their life. Mm. For me, the stuff that I really enjoyed was bands like Caius. Like the album Blues for the Red Sun was like my jam, basically. I like the idea of people taking acid with generators out in the desert, making really heavy music. So that's kind of where my my tendencies went. And obviously, as soon as they turned into Queens of the Stone Age, you know, that was rad too, because that kind of was more my world. So that's where I ended up. And you can kind of hear, especially in the Eskimo Joe thing, you know, there's always comes from that guitar world. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think, uh, was it uh, Brant and uh, is Nick? They've got another band. They couldn't, because they can't call it Caius anymore. Right, right. Because they've had that big, you know. But I think they're called Stoner now, and they're currently touring. I think they're in the country, like, right now. So which, really? Wow. And so the drummer, is he Brant? Which one was the drummer? Because he was the guy. He's yeah. the guy who was the original member of Caius, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, kind yeah. Of, and kind of, you know, likes to coin himself as the, uh, the, you know, the uncle or grandpa of Stoner Rock. So that would make sense if they called themselves Stoner. Very nice. Yeah, that's that's it. So I think someone's gonna out there. They're gonna they're gonna message me and go, "That was wrong, idiot." And I'll go, "Yeah." <laughs> oh well. Here's hope. Hopefully, people are paying attention. That'd be lovely. No, oh, they will. They will. Of course, they. <laughs> you but anyway yeah. hey my name's nev cav cav nev thanks for joining me. absolute pleasure to be together at last yeah absolutely dude because uh mate you're about to release your new album uh machines of love and grace on october 19 which is wednesday wednesday that correct you should know yeah. that yeah this week yeah dude it's gonna be it, it's such a good album I thank you very much yeah Man. It's, um, it's the, because it's my second album, there, it was a much more relaxed effort in some ways. And whenever those moments have happened in life, there's nothing wrong with like, you know, staying up all night to get it right. But um, the times when I've made the records where it's felt like most fluid and easy has been albums like an Eskimo Joe, like A Song as a City and Black Fingernails Red Wine were both really just easy records to make in a lot of ways. Um, and this record felt the same. Um, and it was, I mean, I say that now that I finished it, I was probably like, this is so hard when I was doing it. But, um, but a lot of it uh, I made in the jam room that you can see behind me. And, oh. um, you know, you can see the piano just through the curtains there. And I would literally have to press record and then run to the other side of the studio and play piano to the best of my abilities. Cause I couldn't let anybody else in the room because it was COVID. Um, and then I just had to make a decision, like, does that sound good or bad? Not like, 
what kind of piano sound should I be pulling? I was literally like, yeah, that's good. Moving on. So what came, what's come out of it is a much more kind of organic sounding record, but you know, with your drum machines and bits and pieces too. I love that. And that's, I mean, this is uh, like uh, in your, like the jam space or is this in your house or is this? No, this is a studio that I share with a bunch of other musicians in a building filled with a whole bunch of other musicians. And um, it was really great because during the writing of the record, I was like, at first I was like, well, shit, I can't go anywhere and record with anyone and I can't get any, you know, I can't decide Oh, this, I want this person to play drums today. Um, so I just had to kind of use with what was around me. And as you can see, the whole of percussion gear. Yeah. And one of the guys in the studio with is a percussionist. So, you know, for tracks, I was like, oh, hey, what are you doing today? Can you play some percussion? And he'd be like, you know, do his thing. And so those flavors kind of came in um, completely by necessity because that was, you know, all I could do. And then upstairs from me where I'm pointing uh, is this thing called the Synth Lab. And it's like uh, a bunch of guys have put it together. And it looks like an installation of a 60s, spaceship like from like a sci-fi series in the in the 60s but it's wall to floor with synths and like noise generators and shit and so i just kind of went in there and put like all my midi tracks through there and recorded them and you know that was by necessity because they were right there so that's so cool man like especially you've got that hub there where you can just go and be creative you know a lot of dudes you know got stuck at home and and were making you know bedroom albums and stuff but well, there's nothing like that. I mean, bedroom albums are great, you know. It's true. It's true. Try doing death metal in a bedroom. But um, <laughs> if, you've, if you've seen that that, that kind of uh, um, docudrama on the on the black metal scene, yes, I don't know if you've seen that the one that's just come out that's uh, about the you know all the church burnings and stuff. Um, that that sounds like their kind of form of metal started as a bed as bedroom metal, basically. But doesn't all metal start as bedroom metal? It's like, true. That, yeah. <laughs> Apart from Metallica, yeah. yeah, they've they've got uh they've got several bedrooms. Yeah, that's right. You They're know. all in yeah. very large, very luxurious bedrooms everywhere. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> yeah, but um, of course, I mean, how was it putting it together during that time? Like, I know you 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 had. Was it, did you feel kind of, even though you had all that there and you had, you could pull people in to help you out, did it, did it feel kind of like a little isolating having to work that way? Yeah, I think it started like, you know, when you, any ideas that start, starting is easy. It's the finishing that's really, really hard of projects. Otherwise, everyone would just be putting out albums left, right, and center. But, you know, so starting it was like a magical playground where I could kind of do whatever I want. Um, but it wasn't until I kind of got to that three quarter mark and started having make these big decisions about, okay, I've got to finish this song. Cause I'm going to put it out now. Um, that's the bit where, you know, you really start to sweat a little bit more. Um, you know, uh, as you said, you know, I was kind of drawing on people around me and it was, but what I did is I started off just writing and using the computer as my band basically, and had some drum samples from my last solo record and kind of used them to start to map out the drums and, just recording bits and pieces. And then these demos grew into the actual, you know, recordings of the record. And so eventually as the world opened up, I was able to take these demos, which are all sounding pretty good, but a little bit bedroomy. Um, and I took them to my old studio that we used to own with Eskimo Joe, uh, which is called Sundown Studios now. And luckily a chap called Elliot Smith works out of there and um, he's a great drummer. He used to be in a band called The Chemist who he signed many years ago when Eskimo Joe had a record label. 
But anyway, we I kind of sh- I still wanted that seventies kind of drum sound, which I love that kind of early Neil Young kind of stuff. So we, which is basically what the program drums were sounding like. So we just, you know, recorded them in this tiny little room and he, uh, with Elliot, we laid down a bunch of the drums and then I got to take them back into my studio and then build them up with some proper takes and, you know, getting it right. Um, but I, that was the process. It was kind of going from demo to, um, you know, to the final version and, and not to nerd out too much, but that's kind of tr- can get a bit tricky when you're jumping between sessions, you know, like, cause I use a program called Pro Tools and, yes. you know, you you know, you, you can go in there and you can do stuff, but if you, things are speeding up and slowing down and things get pretty messy pretty quickly. So a lot of the time I had to kind of go, that's the demo. I'm going to put that aside over there and I'm basically starting it from scratch on the way up. And that feels like a huge mountain to climb when you're at the bottom of it. But, you know, once you get to this stage and you've done everything, it feels easy. So. <laughs> <laughs> but did much of it change between that? You know, if you've, you've had to restructure them and, and rebuild them up between that. Did you sort of discover a few things? Well, the most interesting thing that happened on this project that I've never done before is I started to release music before I'd finished the album. Um, And the first song that came out was the title track called Machines of Love and Grace. I knew that was going to be the title track. You know, it has, you know, back to our original reference of Kais, it has has a real kind of Queens of the Stone Age swagger going on in in the choruses, um, which I've always wanted to do. Um, so that happened and I got to kind of test the reaction of how people were responding to that. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So that kind of started to inform everything I did, you know, as I got this palette together of sounds, then I saw what was working. I was like, that felt much more tangible. So then the next song was a, that I put out was a song called Graduation Day, which I did with Katie Steele yeah. of Little Birdie fame. And, you know, her voice is just better than it's ever been. And we got to co-write a bunch of that, that together. But even at that point, I was like, you know, in the final moments of shit, I got to put this out next week. I haven't even finished the record, but putting out another song. Um, but I was lucky because I would um, email Joel from Eskies and be like, I think it's almost there. What do you think? And he would kind of give me that forest from the trees moment. He'd be like, yeah, you're pretty much there. Just do, you know, put this stuff on and make it sound expensive and do this over there. I was like, yeah, cool. All right. Excellent. And then on I went. So that's handy that you've had that there that, you know, because I know what it's like, man. You don't know when to stop sometimes. You you need well, something to go. Just that'll do. Well, it's it's the it's not that I used to think of this idea that it was like you know you can always put one more paint stroke on the on the canvas. You know you could keep going forever. You could, but really, what you're deferring is the decision making process. And the decision making process is kind of the hard part of making records because at some point in time you're like that's the idea it's finished but it also needs this idea as well and it's like all of these decisions is what is what makes your brain hurt i think yeah and it doesn't stop but um hey the saxophone though i love because yes. i'm a big bowie fan so when yes. i hear that it reminds me of like 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 black star like was last time i've heard the sax used like that you're you're the second person who's referenced the Black Star thing who I've talked to, and I admittedly haven't even heard that song, which is which I'm glad that people are referencing something that's a bit more future, uh, because uh, when I that song was actually Emergency in D Minor was the last song that I wrote for the record, and I always kind of wanted to make this record that was like almost like my favourite books that I read, um, the kind of post-apocalyptic books, like because we've just been living through a post-apocalyptic true story. Um, so, you know, Margaret Atwood and Haruki Murakami and Izu, uh, what's his name? Kazoo, uh, 
Iziru is his name, who did Clara and the Sun, which is a book that came out recently. Anyway, like these guys all write in this really kind of post-apocalyptic fantasy. And I, I always wanted, and so I imagined the album kind of reading like that. And the last track that I did was this song about in D minor, which was like the introduction. And that's often what, you know, writers do. They'll write their book and then they'll go back and write the prologue of the introduction at the end. And it's about kind of emerging, you know, out of lockdown and everything for the first time, like a fish, you know, coming out of under the pressure of the ocean and exploding. Um, but uh, I wanted to do this big, you know, epic opener, uh, like, you know, a la shine on your crazy diamond. So I got, yeah. Aaron, who had played with us at the grand final performance and um, when we did the AFL grand final in, in, in 2021 and um, I sent her, but I was really particular about the saxophone sound. Cause as you know, like an unironic sax on an album can just be shit, but you know, it can be good. This is the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I sent her a playlist called sexy good times. Um, and it had like shine on your crazy diamond. It had walk on the wild side, which is a Bowie produced, you know, um, number, mm. but, uh, it, and it had, uh, air playground love and a very underrated song called pinball by John Prothero. I think this is his name. So check that out. But, um, yeah, we did that. And then I used the synth lab upstairs and, um, and it's also a bold move to go, this is going to be the opening track. So I sent it off to get mixed and it came back and it was like my favorite moment on the whole record. Cause it's, it's the most self-indulgent moment on the record. Everything is, feels very kind of has this element of, you know, polished consideredness about it. Whereas that song's just like total, my teenage stoner fantasy of like, just want to make a record where you smoke a number and then put headphones on and just like, yeah. <laughs> you know. It was so good, man. Yep. Hey, really good in headphones. Like I, I was like listening and I was just chilling out and just, man, I do love that opening. Like, I don't think, I don't think I've heard a band do that before. I do like it. Would you just do it on a, a tape recorder or was that just an effect or? It was actually like a dictaphone, dictaphone message from my um, iPhone. When I first wrote the song, like it was like our first Eskies trip away from Perth post lockdown. And I kind of had that moment, like, you know, that coming up from the pressure moment, I was like sending in this skyscraper of glass, like up in the sky in this lush hotel room overlooking Melbourne city. And my mind was just like, everything still exists. Oh my God. And, you know, so that was where the kind of a lot of that, the ideas came from. And, and I started to record some of that stuff and it happens twice on the record. There's, there's one at the very beginning and then there's an interlude that happens as well. And it's just, yeah, it's my kind of voice memo that I didn't realize would end up on the record, but I, I just put it on there and it just sounded cool. And it was, it was the, the kernel of the idea. So it's nice that that's where it starts as well. I dig it, man. More of that stuff. I dig it. Yes. I mean, yeah. 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 But you know, th this is something that's always drawn me to your music is that it's quite dark. You know, there's a darkness in your music and a melancholy sort of vibe that I don't really hear, especially in other mainstream artists. Uh, in Australia, and I, I just—it's something that's always drawn me to to it. Where does that sort of—I mean, we touched up on it a little bit before, but where, where do you think that really comes from within you? Deep sadness. <laughs> um, yeah. No, um, you know. Well, yeah. Look, in yes, all honesty, I know. Yeah. we become writers in the first place because you know, even people who get into music, and for me, it was like especially in my teenage years, it was that, that I always loved storytelling, but it was where I found that I could be most articulate by doing this combination of 
you know, how I felt in the sound of my voice as well as the lyrics that I was saying. So, you know, so began my journey as a songwriter, but I've, I love ha happy, sad, you know? So like, you know, the cure that, not that I'm a massive cure fan, but that idea that something can be kind of upbeat, but really have dark undertones, you know, if it stays in the happy for too long, I want to vomit in my mouth. If it stays in like the sad for too long, it's like getting stuck on at watching rage with a Depeche mode special or something, you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's like, Oh man, it just stays dark for too long. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, just that, that I like that, that balance between those two worlds. I do. Yeah. See, that's, that's what I like as well. I'm a big modest mouse fan. I don't know if you, Oh yeah, they're rad. Yeah. I love, oh, modest mouse. I love that. They've, they sort of do that as well. You know, it's like, when you really listen to the lyrics, you're like, Oh man, that's, it goes. And I think you've got that same kind of thing where you listen to the lyrics and, and, even though you know they're happy, sad, and then it's just it hits you hard. Yeah, right. Up on this one too that I found that that were pretty heavy too. Well, I, th I guess you always, as an artist, you're always writing stuff that you would want to listen to yourself. So <laughs> I'm just trying to write, you know, the best album that I'd like to listen to. What about the process between your solo stuff and and Eskimo Joe stuff? Is it different? Is it a different approach? I think the 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 where it's different is in the workshopping of the idea. Like you, every song just starts off as this kind of just this idea, and you're just trying to you start to write a song, and then at a certain point in time, you'll kind of look at your calendar that week, and you're like, oh, it's time to write a song for someone else. So you can you present that idea in a jam with someone, or you're like, oh, we're working on a new Esky song, so I guess I'll be presenting this as the as an idea. Um, and then sometimes you're like, well, looks like I'm making a Cav record this pandemic. Um, so, you know, you just, they, they become that. And there's a, the, the really lovely thing about making this record is, you know, we touched on it a bit before, but just that it was, you know, I got to be less analytical about what I, what I was doing and which is, you know, so much part of that workshopping thing and things can get a little bit stinky. And if you over workshop an idea, um, so, you know, this, yeah, this is, again, it feels like a very freeing time because even though I was workshopping it, it was like. It wasn't kind of ending up, it was just ending up where it was ending up. I wasn't trying to make an Eskimo Joe record or, you know, sit down with some pop artist and write a pop song, you know, it was good. And I, I, it's a very honest record as well. And that's what I like about it as, uh, you know, it's with everything you said, you're not making a pop record with somebody else. You're not making, it, it's very you. <laughs> and that's what I think that a lot of other people are going to gravitate towards. Oh, good, I hope. I mean, you know, it's a it's a crazy time in the industry to be a career musician. But um, I'm uh, what uh, one of my very good friends, Josh Pike, likes to refer to as a lifer. Um, and it's almost like a, a prison sentence. You know, you are sentenced to writing songs for the rest of your life, whether whether anyone has money or, or they cost money to buy anymore. You know, it's just what you do. And um, so it is a strange kind of time in, in the world to be making music and, and making that your life. But uh, but I will continue to do it. And I do hope that people hear this music and, you know, get something out of it, you know, take it into their lives and it becomes their story and not my story anymore. Um, and I really feel passionately that this record will do that. 100%, man. 100%. I mean, you've been, I mean, you said you're a lifer. You've been doing this for a very, very long time, dude. I mean, I'm not going to give away my age, but I'm pretty old. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, like, ask you my joke. 25? 25, you guys turned. Yeah, something like that. We started in 1997. So, yeah, that's, that's getting close to 25. Yeah, man. I still think that's like the best year. Of music i don't know i've spoken to a few people but there's something there was a sweet spot there dude 
Like there was a big day out. 97 was significant for me. Mm. Um, I don't know. It was just, I guess kids don't get the whole thing where you get to wake up on Saturday morning and flip on recovery and see bands like yourself and be like, I want to do that. You know what I mean? Like they get the rage and everything like that, but. It was no, that special time. Recovery was recovery was something special, and I think that's what makes that era of music um, quite remarkable. Is that you had, you know, coming out of your Nirvanas and your Pixies and those kinds of bands, you had mainstream money going into what were essentially real artists, and that had a pretty sweet spot based around seat the CDs sales. You know, they were cheap to manufacture. You could pump heaps of them out of there, and I feel so lucky that I was part of that generation of the last of the CD sales because. That meant that, you know, it's one of the things is like there's probably people making great music all over the world, but there's not that marketing money there anymore that these big record companies had to just pump out, you know, to the masses. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I think, you know, people are very sentimental about that time and the records that were made. I mean, I think about the combination of people like Butch Vig, you know, who oh. was kind of essentially came from a pretty kind of indie background, but was making these mega records with you know like bands like nirvana and the smashing pumpkins and you know just like huge budgets making really fucking cool music i mean like what a moment oh absolutely like uh you, you just mentioned like uh two of my favorite like butch vig garbage yes. i'm a massive garbage fan and smashing pumpkins are like my favorite band of all time so it was definitely that that time period you know and we didn't have we didn't have phones and stuff we had to go to the cd shop and 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 buy it and we'd have to listen to it chuck the little headphones on and if it sucked you were like yeah but man i like the the listening station in the shop where you'd get the seat they'd put the cd on and you'd that, that would be the only time you'd be able to sample the music you know you'd just be like first track like, oh yeah and then be about the time when you get to about track four where you had to make that decision and it was like am i going to spend my hard on dollars on on and take a punt on this and sometimes it was great um and sometimes it wasn't great but you you also discovered records that you would normally not get into because you'd made the commitment now yeah that's <laughs> it for that yeah, um, but what what was your uh, first CD that you remember owning? It was a soundtrack. It was the Last Action Hero soundtrack. <laughs> That's great. With uh, yeah, with Akadaka and Alice in Chains yeah. and Megan. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that was a classic. Yeah, like eighties metal album. But it would have been early nineties by that stage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ninety three, because there I you go. I won it. When I went and saw Jurassic Park, I, I skipped school and I yes. went to Jurassic Park and it was the opening of a new cinema. And they're like, do you want a copy of the CD? It's like, yes, I do. It's got Arnie on the front. Oh, so thank yes. you very much. But what was yours? That's uh, a- mine, mine was like my, uh, I, the first kind of like record I bought for myself was um, Faith No More's Epic on cassette. But then it was more as far as like having a long standing influence, the first CD that I ever bought um, was Beck's Mellow Gold. Cool. And and I would like, I had a, like a CD player in my room and I would listen to it every night. And, you know, I love the storytelling. He's like, also, he's like one of those artists creatively that, you know, if I'm ever in doubt, I'm like, what would Beck do? You know, like I have those moments. But um, the funny thing was, is the final track on the record, like it was the, it was the time of the secret track where yeah. everyone you know, CD had these, like you could have 99 tracks and then finally get to a, a secret track. Anyway, Bex was this one called Synth, like, 
anthology or something or synthology. And it was just this, like it waited for a while, then just came in like, just as I'd be like drifting off to sleep at night. And with this, just like actual noise synth coming on and you'd like run up and have to turn it off. Uh, so I think that's, that's Beck in a nutshell, really. I miss that. I miss having to like uh, put the CD on and then you'd uh, hold, you'd have to hold the fast forward button. And then you said, and you'd have to go back because you'd skipped past it. Yeah. Well, back to uh, where we began the conversation, which was Caius was also one of the earliest CDs that I bought. And uh, that was um, that, that first album, like it, it ran from track to track and that was how it was intended to be listened to. So when they did, they kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit, I must admit, but they had Welcome to the Sky Valley. So they made three songs at a time. You couldn't, you could only skip three at a time. You had to listen to the jam, you know? And I was like, oh, it, I, I thought it was rad at the time, but the album kind of bombed because of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good track it is, but it's a classic. Like now it's like considered like sacred classic to a lot of the stoner rock dudes. Yes, of course. It's like, yeah, but you know, Hey, I uh talking about well, I'm, I'm starting to sound like an old man, like reminiscing about the the nineties. Back in the day. Back in the day. I oh, know what's wrong with me. But I did remember seeing you guys. I think it was the first time was Livid ninety seven, I think it in was. Brisbane. In Brisbane, bro. Yeah, Little Dev was, was there. That was that was um, that's amazing that you mentioned that because that was our fourth gig ever and what happened is we entered the campus band competition um because we'd done it the year before with our other band which was a uh, one of those uh, i think unfortunate moments in time where funk and metal came together in the mainstream oh. it wasn't great uh but we had a band called freud's pillow we came second in in, in perth and then we you know, I started this other band called Eskimo Joe and we were like, well, you know, we've got this one kind of novelty song. If we do three more of these, surely we'll win. And we did, lo and behold. And so our fourth gig was we were like, where the fuck are we? What's going on? And we were playing at Livid. So that's amazing that you were there. I was there, dude. Man, wow. little, Nev, little Nev. That was like <laughs> little Nev with his long hair. Staring it up. That was such a, I can't remember even who else played that one, but I know it was a good time. I um I remember watching the Super Jesus who were just kind of hot off the press at the time and they were really cool because like Sarah was such a natural like fucking rock star but they were doing this very Smashing Pumpkinsy kind of stuff with female vocals and that was cool that record and um you know I've since gone on to become really really close friends with Sarah after years and years you know we like we did tours together it took a long time till we kind of became besties. But um, but it's amazing uh, to think that yeah, that was the I saw I saw her at that gig, and um, yeah, I was like nineteen at the time, and you know, looking malnutritioned. And I think I tried to dry my hair blonde and just look like a, I'd have just <laughs> survived some kind of chemical exposure or something. <laughs> Man, that was that was who else was? It? I remember Gurge. I I think it was the Gurge that day, and it was um, well played. Who was that? Cake played, I remember. Yeah, that's right. It was Cake and um, She Had, because I was a massive She Had. Yeah, band. they were high because they were gen- that was General Electric time, or, or was it just before that? Yeah, it was just before. Yeah, that. just before after Killjoy. Yeah. So yeah, that was a good time, man. That was a good time. But um, man, another thing moving forward though, you know, you've got bands that are covering your tracks now, which is pretty cool. Like Polaris. Yeah, that was rad, man. 
Incredible. Well, have you have you been in touch with those dudes about that? I think we messaged them like on, you know, social media and stuff, but uh, yeah, shout out to those guys because um, that was so rad and, and really cool to hear them talking about, you know, hearing Eskimo Joe for the first time when they were in high school and they were like talking about Sarah and Black Females and liking like you were talking about the darkness that there was like, it was a bit different to the other songs on the radio because it was a bit more of a darker edge going on. Um, and I love that they kind of brought the metal vibes to that and it worked. It was, it was super cool. I've always heard that in that song. Hey. And the other ones too, like, man, I just want to hear like all these different interpretations because it's, you write stuff that is very open to a different interpretation. Well, I think that's the, the ultimate compliment is if that ever happens. I'm always encouraging bands. I'm like, Wouldn't, don't you want to do a remix of one of our songs? I'm like, oh, maybe. Um, I was trying to convince the uh, AB original guys to do a remix of Foreign Land to do the P Diddy thing on it because you know how it's it's kind of got this like Led Zepp, you know, kind of and uh, I did a gig with those guys where they got me up on stage in Perth to sing Jan 26 with them Um, and it was such a rad experience to be at a hip-hop gig you know like it's such a vibe I was just like man I can't get into hip-hop this is great Uh, but um, yeah that was super cool guys and Trials who's the um, the, you know he does a lot of the beat making and stuff in that band I was like chatting to him about maybe doing some kind of you know, cutting up some Esky's drums. And uh, so that's that could be in, on the cards. You never know. That's exciting, dude. That's super exciting. Um, maybe, but, uh, maybe we need to do like, do you remember those records that were coming out um, in the kind of early 90s and they'd be like kind of metal and kind of indie bands do like with hip hop artists doing like kind of remix sounds. I remember it was like, it's a great like Faith No More and Booyah Tribe did one. There was Judgment Night soundtrack, brother. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. That's the one. That was rad. So maybe we need to do another one of them. Just get some, you know, Polaris and us and some like hip hop bands. This could happen. That is the best idea, dude. Because there's, it's both of those scenes right now seem to be incredibly strong, but they're on opposite side of the fence. Yeah. Especially if you got some of those new wave kind of like metal, uh, you know, your parkway drives and those kinds yeah. of guys. You know, hooking up with some hip hop bands, doing that kind of thing, that could be rad. You should totally spearhead that, dude. I'm doing it, man. This is Do happening. It. Take all my money. Oh, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I have no money. Crowdfund it. <laughs> yeah, do it for sure. But uh, man, I'm running out of time. Sorry, I've kept you a little. While. I've been enjoying this chat. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. But uh, mate, uh, of course you're going to be hitting, hitting the road. Is that that's the next thing? Kind of, yeah. I've got um, I'm doing a drop of NFTs, uh, which is part of the record. So I've worked with the guy who did all the artwork for the record, and I've written uh, these things called this series of NFTs called Songs in the Key of A B C D E F G. It's well, this first one's called uh, Love in the Key of A B C D E F G, and it's the same song rewritten seven different times in the seven different keys. Well, um, and they're coming out as these kind of animated playing cards, which are based on the artwork for the record. So we're going to drop that in November. We're going to do um, an exhibition at this uh, NFT gallery called Oshi Gallery in Melbourne. Um, that'll be really, really fun. Who knows what happens in that space, but I'm just excited that there's this other avenue you can make art through. And it's like not just putting B-sides on your records. Um, so We'll see how that goes. And then in February, I'm going to hit the road playing um, this album in the cities, you know, playing it live. Don't know what guys it'll take it on. It'll probably just be me with an acoustic guitar again, but 
uh, you know, that's what you get when you get solo cab. I do, and, the, and the kick drum. I like that. And the kick drum. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't stand up and play the kick drum. I need to sit down. So, and my wife keeps telling me I need to stand up. So, I don't know what's going to happen. I tried to get a stool that was really high, but still. Well, those, still well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're just kind of propped up because playing a kick drum standing up is like, man, you need a hip, hip replacement by the end of that. Yeah. So, but it's a cool vibe having a real kick drum though. I, I agree. It's cool, man. And I hope to see you. I hope to see you very soon, mate. I appreciate you uh, going over time and having a chat. And we'll have. Oh, and there's my wife right now. So. Oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Hey, I will. Uh, thank you for having us. We'll have all um, the down here. All right, brilliant, cool. I'm lo- looking forward to it going up live, everywhere, right. brother. Cool man. Take thank care. You, yourself, man. Yeah. Right, see you. Yeah.